Hey everyone, I'm Peter Laws, welcoming you to Season 2, Episode 6 of Creepy Cove Community Church. If you want to stay in the loop with all that I'm up to, you can visit peterlaws.co.uk where you can find out all about my books and the work I do. You'll even get a free copy of a book that I've recently written called Weird, which explains a little bit about why I'm happy to combine the sacred and the scary. Also, don't forget you can keep Creepy Cove going by becoming a member of the congregation. Just visit patreon.com forward slash creepycove to find out about all the exclusive extras. But for now, feel free to put down your umbrella and get in from the rain, because it's time to head inside to church. Our church sits in a cold place at the very edge of a windswept cliff. Here, we overlook the notorious community of Creepy Cove, a haunted, mysterious fishing town by the sea. It is a place where every horror movie actually happened. And we have served the spiritual and spooky needs of the cove for centuries. And now, we invite you, our special friend, to join us. So come on in, shake off the rain, because the after dark service is about to begin. This is Creepy Cove Community Church. We bid you welcome. <laughs> welcome, welcome one and all. Do come in and find yourself a space. And wonderful to see so many of you joining us here, both in person and also via our trendy podcast function. It's exciting to know that the word is getting out that Creepy Cove exists, but remember, tell your friends and let them come too. We have plenty of room for them. Oh, yes. Oof. Well, how about we catch up with the latest news here in Creepy Cove? Yes. What is happening? Well, I'm afraid even though we are all in good mood, I will have to start our notices with a rather unsavory item, which concerns the church library. As many of you will know, if you go through that little large doorway on the right here, yes, that's the one between the baptismal font and the Elvira pinball machine, you will find a corridor that leads to our church library. It contains many interesting and informative books, CDs, DVDs, and all the other media that you don't use anymore. And uh, you are most welcome to borrow it at any time. And yet, sadly, despite our loan system being completely free, we have still had a recent experience of burglary. Yes, on Thursday morn, we opened up the library to find that one of the half-moon Amateurville windows had been shattered with a filthy rock, and the assailant had crawled inside and have stolen five books from the shelf, a heinous deed. So while we do not wish to turn you all into curtain-twitching paranoids who suspect even your closest family members of this sickening crime, we would still request that you keep out an eye for the following five books which have distinctive stickers on the front which clearly label them as Creepy Cove Community Church Library Stock. The five books are Watership Up, the very rare sequel to the rabbit horror book Watership Down. There are very, very few copies of that in existence, so please bring that back. Also, Making Waves was taken. That's the autobiography of the actor David Hasselhoff. We still have the autographed version, of course, but it is the unsigned copy that was taken. Uh, 
What to Expect When You're Expecting is a very helpful book on pregnancy which has helped many people out in our church and it was donated to the library by Rosemary Woodhouse. But that's gone too, so we'd like that back, please. Another book that was taken was the Necronomicon, which really needs to be consulted under the watchful eye of our church library experts, so one worries about it being out in the wild. And finally, Fifty Shades of Grapes. That's a delightful gardening tome that is a handsome addition to any coffee table. Please, would you return our most treasured tomes to us? Simply pop them through the letterbox, perhaps, or send them in a jiffy. Oh, by which I mean in a jiffy bag, a padded envelope, rather than a speedy time frame, though. To be honest, thinking about it, we'd like them back soon anyway. So actually, yes, send the books back in a jiffy, in a jiffy. And if you happen to be the person who has stolen these things, could I just say, um, if you're suffering or struggling at the moment with some sort of kleptomania, or you require support in pregnancy, or you simply want to summon the Elder Ones or David Hasselhoff, please talk to us. We would be most willing to help you if you're in a struggle at the moment. So don't think we're going to murder you when you return the books. Please do. Well, moving on from that crime most foul, we go to another item which is more pleasurable. It is my absolute delight to welcome a very special guest to our stage. And before she arrives, I do have to say a word of reassurance, as I know that some of you in the church have expressed great concern and dread at her presence. You see, if you are a vampire here tonight, please would you feel at ease, for we have asked our guest to refrain from killing you for the duration of the service. Indeed, I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised to find that you can even be at ease around her from now on. You see, our lovely guest tonight is none other than a local high school personality, cheerleader extraordinaire, and ruthless yet witty destroyer of the undead. It is, of course, Buffy Summers also known as Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> so Buffy, if you could make your way up to the... Oh, one moment. She appears to be on her flip phone. <laughs> Buffy! Buffy! What do you want? Buffy, are you, are you ready to come on the stage for a little tit-a-tit? Okay. Yay, here she comes, a moving and a grooving. <laughs> well, hello, Buffy. And a huge welcome to you. You're unconscionably spiffy. Oh, what a lovely thing to say. Well, that's just my way. Now, just in case anyone in church is not aware of who you are, could you please give us a little, um, Buffy bio? <laughs> First of all, I'm a vampire slayer. And secondly, I'm retired. Ah, yes. We've heard that you'd hung up your stake for a while, which is in some ways a shame, as we've been having some missing children in town since Barlow and Straker Antiques opened last year. Yes, street gossip is that Mr. Barlow is actually a rat-faced putrid monster of a sky-blue hue who is intent on bringing death, pestilence, and reasonably priced antiques to the cove. In other words, your typical male. <laughs> typical male. <laughs> but seriously, children are dying. Right. At the hands I'm sorry, you're right. Vampires. Of, yes. But before you reach for the stake, you do know that some of our members of our congregation are indeed vampires, but I assure you, 
They act most responsibly and have ethically supplied blood. But Creepy Cove does have a few ravenous fanged folks who always appear to be on a munchie of late, like Mr. Barlow. So some would have loved you to have dusted off that steak, Buffy, and dispatched him. Hey, I know. Why don't you kill him? <laughs> oh, golly, I'm not sure if I have the requisite skills required to do that. Oh, come on. Stake through the heart, a little sunlight. It's like falling off the wall. Mm. Well, perhaps you're right. Perhaps Brenda and I could attempt the execution of Mr. Barlow. Make a day of it, perhaps. There's lots of places for a lovely picnic up at the Marston House. No, I can count on you. <laughs> oh, Buffy, you inspire me, you know. I'm often prone to doubt my own abilities when it comes to killing blood-gazzling ghouls. But you're right. I ought to doubt my doubts and have a little more faith in my stake skills. Oof, look. <laughs> look, everyone, she gave me a trendy high five. The salute of the youth, I led to believe. Anyway, let's uh, move on, Buffet. Uh, Buffy. How are you enjoying retirement? I hear you are currently writing your memoir. Hey, what's wrong? What is I it? can just tell something's wrong. Like what? My spider sense is tingling. Our spiders are very safe. Most of them. Oh, wait. Buffy, yeah. what are you doing? That's oh, me. gosh. A wooden stake. What are you pulling that up for? Just come. Oh, and now you're flipping that stake in a cool Tom Cruise from cocktail type way. Buffy, what are you planning to do with that thing? You promise? No! Buffy! You just staked Brian. He was a very pleasant vampire indeed who helped serve the teas and coffees at the end of the service. And now you have plunged a wooden spike through his servant-hearted heart. I feel better. Oh, well, Brian doesn't feel better. Look at him. He's a twitching. Poor old fellow. Look at that. What? No. <laughs> Brian was wearing his stake-proof vest. So we're a-okay. Buffy, would you like to apologize to Brian for that? It's not how it goes. I know you don't apologize normally for slaying, but we're a little bit more welcoming here at the Cove to all manners of life, so please. Sorry, I have to meet my terrible fate. Uh, don't worry, we're not going to punish you or anything. Just we appreciate the apology for trying to kill Brian. Will you kindly leave your steak collection in the weapons lockbox? You can have it at the end. Sure. It's not like anyone takes it that seriously. <laughs> Put your hands together for Buffy, the mostly retired vampire slayer. <laughs> Thank you, Buffy. Well, my fun. You know, Brian is a father of three. Well, moving on now. I'd like to invite Peter for tonight's sermon. Peter? Thank you, Rupert. Uh, it's good to be here. But before we uh, go into that sermon, we're going to have a Bible reading. And we are honored to have it read to us tonight by Countess Makala Karnstein who some of you know better as Carmela. Hello, Peter. Hi, Carmela. And thank you for this opportunity no problem. to do the Lord's work. Oof. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, and even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Thank you, Carmilla. It's very powerful. Thank you. And thank you. Hey, everyone. Nice to see you once again. And um, I'm glad to see that Barry's uh, doing all right. Well, I want to get started by telling you a quick story. I was in the garden center once because I wanted to buy a wheelbarrow because that's the type of rock and roll life that I lead. And um, I went to the wheelbarrow section, which was outside. And it's an important detail to know this was outside, right? And they had lots of bog standard wheelbarrows all over the place, but they didn't have the right aesthetic for what I was looking for. You see, I'm a stylish type of fella and I like a certain type of wheelbarrow. So I looked high up on a shelf and I could see these smooth, molded, green plastic ones with red handles sticking out. And I thought, yes, that's the wheelbarrow for me. So I reached up to grab the handles, but I couldn't quite uh, grab it properly. And so I had to go up on my tiptoes and I pulled down the handles. And I, I remember thinking, crikey, this thing must be really heavy, sturdy and, and well-made because it feels, you know, good quality and hefty. But as I pulled the handles down and jerked the thing downwards, I discovered why it was so heavy. My foolhardy mistake. You see, the reason it was so loaded was because it had been raining that morning. And as soon as I tilted this wheelbarrow in this public shop, this garden centre, I ended up pouring a few gallons of dirty rainwater on myself. I was drenched. Now, remember, this is this is a shop where, you know, there's people in it and stuff. And everyone around me, like, looked over and saw this kind of deluge hit me. And I looked at them like a kind of drowned rat and everyone just sort of averted their eyes. You know, like everyone was embarrassed for me and no one mentioned it or said anything. And I have this bad habit sometimes if I do something embarrassing in public, like, you know, if you trip over a curb or something, my brain says, well, make sure you just let out a very visible and audible laugh. So to show everyone around that you can see the funny side of your faux pas. Well, 
I let out a forced laugh after this water hit me on the head, which came out a lot louder than I expected. So just for about 10 or 20 seconds, I was just there like this really weird, creepy guy covered in filth, like laughing like a maniac. <laughs> oh man, it was, it was terribly embarrassing. And now every time I see a wheelbarrow, I'm taken back to that hideous moment. I don't know if I'll ever touch one of them again in a hurry. But listen, I, I share that story with you because there is a subject that I want to talk to you about, uh, which reminds me of that wheelbarrow incident. It's a thing that, that people can get so freaked out about that they simply avoid discussing it altogether because if they feel if they were really to get to grips with this subject, especially amongst their peers, they would pull down a whole lot of embarrassment on themselves. The subject that I'm talking about is doubt. Yeah. I want to talk to you about those times when you may come to doubt your own worldview or beliefs. Now, this can be a religious worldview, um, but it doesn't have to be. It might be another way of looking at the world. But just think about those moments where what you've always thought was true and was all, you, you're like, yeah, this is how I view the world. And you get to a point where you lie there in bed perhaps at night and you think, Craigie, what happens if I'm wrong? You know, those moments of doubt can be really unsettling and so unsettling that we can avoid discussing them with other people, especially when our peers might get shocked to hear us express that we have doubts about these things. This is especially true in a church scenario. I mean, I, I've seen church pastors, for example, stand in the pulpit and openly admit to struggles. You know, they'll put their hands up and they'll say, I've got to tell you, everybody, I, I struggle to pray sometimes. It's hard, isn't it, guys? And um, they might say, yes, I'm the first to admit I can be unloving sometimes. I can be judgmental. So thankfully, church leaders are willing to admit that they are not perfect. Not all of them are, but many of them are willing to admit that. But it is very rare indeed that I have ever heard a church leader in a pulpit stand up and say, you know what, everyone, I've got to admit to you, sometimes I'm not so sure if God exists. I have my doubts sometimes. That isn't often said because doubt is taboo, not just in religious settings either. It can work the other way. Imagine if you're part of a group of friends who are very strong atheists, for example, and you might feel equally embarrassed to admit that occasionally you doubt your atheism. You worry they might think you're stupid in the same way as the religious person may worry about admitting their doubts because they may think others will view them as a kind of heretic or something like that. So admitting that we sometimes doubt our own worldviews can be uh, a touchy subject and one that we don't feel able to discuss openly. You see, admitting that we are sometimes shaky about our own beliefs can be a bit like the topic of, well, it's like the topic of bowel movements. You know, it's there and most of us know it's there with everybody, but it just doesn't seem to be the done thing to talk about it openly at the dinner table with friends while eating chocolate pudding. Well, here at Creepy Cove, we want to be a different type of place. We want to be a place where you can openly discuss this sort of stuff and where I can openly discuss this sort of stuff. And I will quite openly say right now to you, I absolutely sometimes doubt my own beliefs, you know, like religious beliefs, for example. Of course, there's times when I sometimes think maybe there's no such thing as God. And I want to show you why this is okay, why it is okay for us to embrace or admit or live with 
a mixture of faith in what we believe and sometimes doubt in what we believe. And I want to get started um, by looking at a simple idea, and it's this. Don't be freaked out about doubt because we doubt everything. Sometimes I meet Christians who secretly feel themselves being thrown onto the horns of of an existential crisis because there are times where they are not fully sure God exists. And the irony is they think that this is a really undesirable and shocking state for their mind to be in and something that must be unique to them and a few of the dodgy folk, but they don't seem to appreciate the obvious, that human beings in the 21st century tend to doubt things by default. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to sometimes doubt something like faith. Because um, what is doubt anyway? Doubt is to be undecided about the truth of something, to have skepticism, to suspect that what we think is true may actually not be as true as originally appears. Well, just think about that for a moment. That is how we approach almost all things in life. We live in a culture where doubts about multiple subjects aren't just common, but doubt is actively encouraged. In fact, you could say doubt to a certain extent is common sense. For example, we don't believe everything we see in the media, do we? And I don't just mean the mainstream media, but also independent media or social media. We talked about that last time. You know, is it wise to simply trust and believe everything you read out there? No. Most sensible people would say you should have a certain amount of critical thinking and skepticism when it comes to the media. And um, that doesn't mean the media can never be trusted, far from it. But my point is you do have to have a certain amount of discernment and openness to doubt with the media too. That's just normal. People don't find that weird. It's kind of normal. What about politics? When a politician uh, runs for office and makes a speech of great promises, how do people respond? Well, some with excitement and an assumption that they will indeed carry out those promises, but many, in fact, most will have a dose of skepticism saying, well, this sounds good, but they probably won't deliver on all of that stuff. In fact, for many people, the default position when it comes to politicians is to doubt everything they say. To, you know, I meet plenty of people who come out with the phrase, you know, all politicians are corrupt or they're all liars. They're all self-seeking. We can't believe them. Personally, I doubt that every single politician is out for themselves. I do believe that many politicians get into it for public service, but that does not mean, therefore, that we default to unquestioning trust with every single thing they say. No, a healthy democracy has a certain amount of doubt about the current authority, and it's baked into democracy to have a certain amount of kind of critical thinking. When you find a society that doesn't have that, or, or a society where the leaders are never questioned, or where authority is never questioned and always thought to be correct, well, you find that those are dictatorships and that's not a desirable situation at all. So if you live in a democracy with the freedom of the media, it is very normal indeed to be skeptical. It's part of how we are made and it can sometimes actually be the very wise way of living, and not just in the media and not just in politics, but in other things too. For example, um, what about in the world of celebrity and entertainment? You know, we go to a concert and the singer shouts, I love you, London, I love every one of you. Do we think, ooh, they really do love us, you know, they, they, she loves me personally. I think that means she must want to go on holiday with me next year. I'll go and try and get into a limo because she said she loved me. No, 
we have a healthy level of doubt that knows, well, she doesn't really mean that in the way it sounds. What about our relationships with other people? We start going out with someone and we think they're great, but most of us don't rush into moving in or getting married after like one date because there are healthy doubts as to whether or not this person is the one we want to do that with, you know? Over time, those doubts might get dispelled and who knows, we might find true love or the doubts might get worse and we decide, wow, those doubts were well-founded and we dump them. <laughs> so we live in a society that doubts everything. It's why lie detector tests are so popular on talk shows. But not only that, some of us are, well, frankly, some of us are just naturally wired to doubt anyway. I wonder if this is you. Does this sound like you? Do you uh, find yourself going, did, did I lock the front door when I left? Or did, did, I, did I buy the right car? Oh, we, we bought a new car. Have I made the right decision? Or am I in the right job? Or did I marry the right person? Or, you know, have I done the right thing here? Oh, I just bought this book. Is this the right book I should have bought? Should I have bought another one? Some of us find ourselves second guessing everything we do in almost all of life. What I'm saying is, is we find ourselves naturally falling into some measure of doubt, of not taking things at face value, um, which can have its drawbacks, but on balance, it can be sensible sometimes. Well, listen, that means you cannot be shocked when sometimes you may find yourself doubting your beliefs as well. Don't freak out if you suddenly find yourself doing that. And it only feels strange probably because maybe the community you're in does never never admits those types of doubts. That's the problem with religion and this sort of uh, subject, that people will find themselves uh, never admitting to doubt in public, and so it becomes this taboo subject, and they feel, man, I'm the only one who is doubting this. And you get a skewed, skewed version of this, and you look around and you think, well, everyone else in this church seems to believe this because nobody ever admits that they are not sure if God exists. And yet here I am thinking that very thing, and that's very isolating and lonely. But the fact is, people doubt, okay? And um, it's quite normal. If you doubt everything else to a certain degree, don't be shocked. In fact, if you're a human being living on earth in the 21st century, it would be kind of much more weird if you never doubted your faith. That would be extremely unusual, I think. But our culture is wired to doubt everything. So don't be surprised if it sometimes doubts the worldview you hold dear. There's another reason and why you don't have to let doubt freak you out. It's because I don't think you need to expect certainty where sometimes there can't be certainty. Can you remember having exams at school? Hopefully you won't break out into a cold sweat just remembering those. I used to get a bit worried in exams, not so much because of the exam content, but I used to have this irrational feeling of what happens in, if in the quiet tension of this exam hall where everybody's keeping their mouths shut and everyone's behaving themselves, what happens if I suddenly shout something weird or inappropriate or jump up on my table and do something wild? You know, <laughs> I think there's no reason why I might not do that. Anyway, that's another story. But there are, I, I didn't do it by the way, thankfully. But there are, when it comes to exams, two different types of questions that you're going to get in an exam, isn't there? And I guess depending on your personality, you are going to prefer one over the other. So in maths, for example, you would get questions that have a very definite answer. If you were lucky enough or maybe thick enough to have on your paper 
What's two plus two? Well, you're going to be able to write the definite answer down of four and afterwards feel pretty darn confident that you got that right or wrong. But there are other types of subject, and these actually, frankly, are the ones I preferred, I like best, which were open-ended questions. Ones where in some ways you weren't fully sure until you got the mark whether or not you got it right or not. So, for example, uh, imagine a question like this, an open-ended question. In the book, read and write. Peter and Jane have a red setter dog. Why do you think they named the dog Pat? Discuss. And that's your big exam question, right, for your A-levels or something. And um, it's open-ended. And you can't answer that with absolute certainty. You don't know for absolute certainty why they called the dog Pat. But you just look up at the evidence and you try and come up with a decent argument. Maybe they called the dog Pat because it liked to be patted. Maybe they despised the dog and they wanted to humiliate and mock the dog every day by naming him after a cow Pat. I don't know. But you come up with answers based on the evidence. And some answers are more reasonable than others. So can you see how there are some questions in the world where you can know 100% it's right or wrong? And then there are other questions where, yes, there may well be a real answer out there, but you can't be absolutely expected to be certain about that. You don't know. You base your answers based on evidence. So let me ask a question. Where in your life are you having doubts at the moment? Okay, and maybe you're not, but maybe you are. Where is this question of doubt troubling you? An example would be, let's say if you're a religious or spiritual person and sometimes you doubt God's existence, let's say, or whatever you see as your spirituality, and for some reason that troubles you. Or indeed, you may be an atheist, and sometimes you doubt the non-existence of a spiritual realm, and that troubles you. Who knows? Well, the reason you might struggle with this is because you're expecting to answer that question like a maths puzzle, rather than a philosophy question. Yeah, I guess there must be a definite right or wrong answer about the existence of God, let's say. But I'm just not convinced we can know for certain, at least at this stage of life. Because personally, I think to say God exists or God doesn't exist are in many ways expressions of faith. Now, what is faith? Well, faith is not belief without evidence. I meet some people who caricature faith like that and think that faith is simply make a decision, um, you know, without any evidence. It's kind of blind faith. But no, faith, as far as I can see it, certainly among the friends of mine who have faith, it's about basing a decision based on some sort of evidence. And so some people believe the evidence overwhelmingly points that there is no God and choose that. Fine. They can't prove God doesn't exist, but the evidence is overwhelming for them and they become atheists. I understand that. That makes sense. And other people will say, no, they lean to the other direction. But I still don't think either party can completely prove 100% um, which direction is correct. And so in a sense, they're both moving in the realm of different levels of faith. And I think a lot of religious believers stress themselves out, for example, because they expect faith to mean 100% belief with never a hint of doubt. Or in other words, they define faith as constant certainty. But you know what? I think there is a big difference between faith and certainty. Certainty is when you know something beyond an absolute shadow of a doubt. But faith, by its definition, I think, always has room for doubt. Just that psalm we had read before. It's typical of one of the old psalms in the Bible. 
The Psalms are helpful, I think, because they show the great kind of depth and breadth of people's experience of a life with God. And so they contain people praising God and thinking he's great and others like cursing the day they were born and feeling like God has abandoned them or doubting that God even exists. And it's kind of like normal life. And the Psalms can explore that uh, with a lot of rich imagery and language. And Psalm 27 that we had uh, read to us before was written by King David. And um, King David, described as a man after God's own heart in the Bible and someone who is seen as a hero of the faith. But actually looking at this psalm, if you wanted to, if you thought faith was about certainty, then you could accuse David of being a bit all over the place. In verse 1 to 3, he seems pretty confident in his faith. He says stuff like, The Lord is my light and salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? And you think, oh, this guy's 100% certain that God is present with him. But then you read from verse 7 onwards, and he starts to get a bit distressed at the idea of God being absent. Verse 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. Do not reject or forsake me. Do not hand me over to my enemies. He's scared. He's actually worried that God might potentially let him down. He has room for doubt. But then in verse 13 to 14, he comes to a combination of these two approaches, you see? He says like, I'm still confident of this. I'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, he says. But the last verse is saying, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart, but still wait. Can you see how he starts with confidence of God being there? He moves into doubt and despair that God might not be there. And he ends up with a kind of incomplete confidence in God which is still meaningful, but it's a recognition that he hopes God will do what he hopes, but he is recognizing that he may have to wait to see it, that this is in some ways beyond his control. That I think is what faith looks like. When we live in a world of suffering, a world where we can't see God in front of us, for example, it makes pretty good sense why we would struggle sometimes to think God exists. Um, you know, actually you could argue that even when you see amazing things happen, the people of Jesus' time see miracles done right in front of them, but even they still lost their faith in him and let him be executed on a cross as a criminal, you know? So, you know, it's, it's normal, like I say, for some of us to fall into this, um, this pattern of doubting. And please don't misunderstand me though, just because we can't have constant 100% certainty about you know, our worldview doesn't mean that we can't have a robust act of belief in it. For example, I'm married to my wife. I'd say she loves me, but theoretically speaking, if I think about it, I suppose I don't know with 100% certainty that she loves me. It's conceivable that she might be lying. She may be some sort of imposter or actress, but the evidence I see makes me have faith that she does actually love me. I can't say with 100% certainty that God is real in a lab, I can't prove it to you. It's possible I'm wrong. And equally, I think if I was an atheist, I would be willing to say, I'm not 100% certain that I'm right on this. I just don't know, but this is where I'm, but this is where my evidence has landed me. But it doesn't stop my worldview and the worldview of my atheist friend not being important. You can still live your life based on these things. They can still become vibrant sources of strength and development and peace. It, well, that's what I've found for me anyway. Interestingly, the Bible says that without faith, we can't please God. In other words, this faith stuff seems to delight God. 
And remember, faith is not certainty. So if you're struggling with your own worldview at the moment, particularly if it's a worldview that concerns unprovable factors, then just try and relax a bit, maybe. Don't expect absolute 100% certainty. If you do, if you're living under that expectation, you will freak out when doubt comes along. But instead, when doubt comes, and it absolutely will, realize that it is a natural part of this type of belief. And remember, our whole culture encourages us to doubt everything, and sometimes that can be sensible to have critical thinking. So don't let it freak you out when it comes, because it's quite normal when we are encouraged to doubt everything, and when the topics we are doubting don't even demand 100% certainty, because that can be impossible. And maybe we just end up in the same place as David was in that psalm we just read at the end, which is a kind of mixture of faith, an incomplete hope, not 100%, and uh, maybe that's okay, because maybe that's what it means to be a human being in this crazy world we live in. Well, we're going to keep exploring this idea of doubt uh, in the next session, but for now we're going to move into a time of prayer and reflection and meditation, and particularly focusing on this idea of how doubt does not have to hold us back from kind of going for it in our lives. And so I want you to picture yourself at a train station, ready to catch a train. And there are a couple of minutes to go before the train arrives when you spot the station master. She's walking along and rubbing a cloth on the brass light fittings when someone stops her. And you can't fully here but you get the gist of what they ask her and it's like this it's hey they say to her i'm about to get on this train and i would like a written guarantee that this train won't crash and the station master looks at them funny and says i'm sorry we don't give out those sorts of guarantees and you watch that person shrug and the station master says no seriously we don't have many crashes i'm sure you'd be fine <laughs> But we can't guarantee that. And then you see this traveler shrug and say, well, without 100% proof, I'm not getting on that train. And they leave. And just as they do, the train starts coming up over the hill. You see the steam rising up. And as it approaches you, you need to think about this for a moment. Let this train represent whatever your worldview is, the thing that you find most meaning in. Might be religion, might be faith, might be something else. Maybe you're not sure about it sometimes. Well, it's up to you. Are you going to turn around and leave the station? Or would you like to live your life and get on board without a guarantee? Think about this for a moment. Perhaps imagine your foot leaving the platform and stepping onto the train. And this truly is a step of faith. And off you go on your next adventure. <laughs>
God, we pray that you'll help us in those times when we aren't fully sure what we believe, which can be scary and disorientating and lonely, to be honest. We might not feel able to share these doubts with our peers, but help us to realize that doubt is normal and that we're encouraged to doubt so many things. It's not a surprise that we doubt the fundamentals too. We even doubt ourselves. But help us to know that doubt does not have to be the disaster that it feels like. Just help us to step onto the train and give us the courage to board and to go on the right adventure that you call us to. Amen. Well, thank you for taking part in that. Sorry, what's that? Oh, just a second. Oh, hang on, someone is just handing me a note. Oh, it's about the missing library books, right? Okay, I'll read this. Sorry, I'm gonna have to read this while um, the rest of you guys sing. So I'll invite the band to the front and I'll just read this note, thank you. Oh, and this horror hymn explores how sometimes we can let our minds think the most extreme things that are simply not true, but our belief in them can hold us back and affect our lives. And bear, bear in mind some of these things in this song are a bit dark. Look, 
Intense, wasn't it? Um, just a reminder to everyone: um, these were all obviously uh, imaginary scenarios, which aren't true. Um, but uh, they just are demonstrations of how we can allow our minds to think the most um, out there ideas, and they can stress us out when actually they're not even real. 
Well, thanks for coming, and thanks for this little note about the books. I've read it. Thanks. Ah, Mr. Lee, can I just grab you a second? Uh, Sorry, my apologies. I always do that. Yes, I'll call you Christopher. Christopher, don't take this the wrong way, but someone just handed me a note at the end of the service saying that they think they may have seen one of our missing books in your huge collection at home. I don't have a huge collection. No, I thought you had a... Well, thousands of them. Somebody wrote I had 20,000 books. Wow. I'd have to live in a bath. <laughs> or a Dracula coffin. But no, seriously, like, do, so do you have our books? I have maybe four or five. Oh, four or five. Well, we, we have five missing. Um, what books do you have? The Devil Rides Out, first edition, signed to me by Dennis Wheatley. Yes, but I'm afraid, uh, Christopher, that this note that's been handed to me says that you have been spotted holding the church copy of David Hasselhoff's autobiography, Making Waves. But as I said, I've certainly never been involved, and I warn all of you, never, never, never. Wow, I didn't realise the Hasselhoff books were so intense. You will not only lose your mind, you lose your soul. Oh my goodness, right, well, I guess I'd better avoid that book, I can see it shaking you okay well I hope you don't mind me asking that question about the books let's forget about it for now then and we'll go grab a drink yeah Thank you once again for coming to Creepy Cove Community Church. I hope you uh, found it helpful and interesting. Uh, don't forget to check out uh, peterlaws.co.uk if you want to find out any more information about me and the stuff I do and to sign up for that free copy of the book Weird. Um, we'll see you next time. Uh, but until then, I'll see you patrons in the Peter Laws podcast, which comes out once a week. And if not, I'll see the rest of you at the next service of Creepy Cove Community Church. Thanks for coming, everyone. Goodbye.